Thank you. All right. How you guys doing? All right. Good morning. Am I on? I'm on. Okay. Well, last time I, I spoke, it, it was on joy, and <laughs> this is about blood. <laughs> but uh, hey, Tommy's gone. Um, yeah, Tommy, uh, we normally, for those of you visiting, uh, we normally have a much wiser, uh, gentler pastor, and uh, he's, uh, he's, he's going to be back preaching in two weeks. But um, um, So I'm going to talk about something that I've kind of been studying through Lent, and I think, I think it's really interesting. Uh, despite what you might think of those passages, I think it's a really interesting topic. Um, I think I mentioned this last time, but I'm not sure, but I, I work in a clinical laboratory, uh, so I, I kind of oversee like all the weird stuff that goes to the hospital lab, right? So the microbiology, the hematology, the chemistry, the toxicology. If it's a body fluid or something, it comes to our lab. And uh, no one knows what I do. I don't even think my family knows what I do for a living. If you say you're a nurse, people know they got an idea of what you do. Or if you're a dentist, they, they got a pretty good picture. You say you're in medical laboratory science or clinical pathology, and you just get a blank stare. So. Ever since my kids were old enough to ask, um, they just said, my dad looks at blood. <laughs> and when I would come home from work every day for like years, they would say, did you look at the blood today? Did you look at the blood today? So today, finally, we're going to look at the blood today. Uh, okay, so this will make them happy. Um, why is there so much blood in the Old Testament? Um, we sang songs about it just now. It, I don't subscribe to Twitter. I don't go on Twitter, but it took me about three seconds to find this online. This is what the average atheist will, will point out. Why do you believe in this resurrection fantasy? How, vicar how is vicarious redemption moral? What, your God needs blood sacrifice before it can forgive? How messed up is that? That is a very typical sentiment. Why do we worship this primitive, bloodthirsty God? There's lots of accusations like this. Um, I think it's really important to kind of establish where we're going to be in the Bible, and we're in Leviticus, as Paul just read that first verse. Um, this is the way our Bible is set up in the Old Testament, but the way the Jewish uh, tradition has it set up is the first five books are the law, which is the same as us, and that's called the Torah. You've heard of that, but a lot of people think the Torah refers to the, the Jewish Old Testament, but it's just part of the Jewish Old Testament. There's also the Nevi'im, which is the prophets in yellow here, so Daniel, I'm sorry, in red. Um, all the prophets, major and minor. And then third is the writings, the Ketuvim, Ketuvim, which are Daniel, the Song of Solomon, Proverbs, all the other historical books. And if you take an acronym of those three letters, you get the Tanakh. And the Tanakh is the Jewish Bible. So we're talking about the first part of the Jewish Bible, Leviticus, which is in the Torah. Um, Okay, so, what is Leviticus about? Leviticus is Latin for of the Levites, right? It's right in the name. And the Levites, if you recall, were the priestly tribe that were responsible for carrying out all the ceremonial duties within the tabernacle and then the temple. Okay, first the tabernacle, and then there was a temple. And the whole point of Leviticus, if you had to boil down Leviticus into like one word or one sentence, it's a tech manual for priests. That's what it is. It's a technical manual for how to perform those priestly functions. Not a lot of people preach on Leviticus. Not a lot of people preach on the Old Testament. Fewer than 10% of sermons are on the Old Testament. Um, but I want to talk about this sacrifice phenomenon, because it's all over the Old Testament, if you ever read it. And ask those questions, like, 
what's with all the sacrificing of animals? Why would God want us to do that? Why don't we do it anymore? Do Jews still do it? Um, does God just enjoy barbecue? Like, why did we do all this stuff? And, and, and obviously it's foreshadowing to Jesus, but there's, there's more to it than that. Um, okay. So, um, Leviticus is probably no one's favorite book because, as I said, it's very technical. It's very hard to kind of read through because it's all about these things that you have to do with the blood and with the altar and with the priest and the purification. Um, so I doubt it's anybody's favorite book, but it's all concerned. It's all about how these Israelites could live in the presence of a holy God. God was with them. He dwelled with them in the desert. And God is great, but he's dangerous. He's not to be taken lightly. And they needed a mechanism. They needed a procedure to go in the presence of this God. Okay? They, had, they had to be able to approach God safely while he was with them in the desert. And every sermon can be brought back to the garden, <laughs> just about. And this is what Leviticus is about, too. It's where it all started, right? In the garden, humans did what was right in their own eyes. That phrase is repeated throughout the Bible. They did what was right in their own eyes. We still do that in our society today, right? Everything I read in the news is about us doing what was right in our own eyes. And so Adam and Eve, we know, they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and they were exiled, right? And the entire rest of the Bible is about how to get us back to Eden. That's the whole arc of the Bible, how to get us back into relationship with God. And then Leviticus is that manual for the priests on how to do that in their camp, and then later, as I said, in the temple. So recall that God first chose to dwell in this tent, right, which we call the tabernacle. After the Exodus, right, they got saved out of Egypt, and they're wandering around the desert. They didn't have a temple. They had a tent, and that tent is all described in Leviticus and, and how, how it worked. And a lot of, a t- a lot of times you think, well, they, they were in that temp- that, using that tent for like 40 years while they were in the desert. No, they used that tabernacle for like 500 years, okay? It's important to think about. And when we consider this whole concept of sacrifice, it's really important to say, I know you guys know this, but I got to say it, you have to remember the time and place that the Israelites were in, right? So it's not, nothing is more annoying to me than when, when we project our present-day mindset, preferences, worldview, cultural tendencies, entirely our, our whole world, our whole culture, onto another people group, right? The Israelites lived 3,500 years ago in the Bronze Age, and then later into the Iron Age. But these were ancient people, right? Different in all sorts of ways. So we have to cast off our cultural biases and see how God met these people where they were and when they existed. I think that's really important. And it's absurd to think that we would have the same, that these people back then would have the same aversions that us enlightened Northwestern Oregonians would um, when it comes to things like butchering livestock or animals. Um, They had different family structures, they had different language, they had different experiences, they had different technology. Um, Everything they they were would have been foreign to us. We have the same God, but not much else. Okay, so remember that. Don't expect people thousands of years ago to have, uh, I mean, these people had like less technology than we have in a dinner fork. And and to, to, to have them have the same mindset that we do, that's just not fair, okay? All right, so in Leviticus, there's offerings described. There's five different offerings. This is really interesting, whether you believe me or not. Oh, actually, I gotta get my water. I kept my water in here. Did you know there's a little hiding spot in there? You should see the stuff Tommy's got in here. No. Okay, so there's, four, there's five different offerings. Ascension offering, that's what we're gonna talk about. 
the gift offering, the peace offering, purification, and the guilt offering. Okay, now of those five offerings, three are for atonement. So the word offering in Hebrew is korban, korban, and uh, it's a kind of a weird word, and we translate it offering, but um, I was listening to some Hebrew scholars talk about this, and actually the better translation is a bringing near thing. <laughs> it's not an easy, that's why we translate it offering. But it was a thing that they brought near, they brought so they could come near to the tabernacle, okay? A bringing near thing. And um, we're not going to go into all of these, but as I said, we're going to talk about atonement. And atonement, the word in Hebrew, maybe you know it, Kippur, like the holiday, the festival, Yom Kippur. Kippur is atonement. And even in English, it's at one mint. It's reconciling. It's about reconciling, at one mint. It's bringing two things, repairing them into one. That's what the word atonement was. And that's what these three offerings were supposed to do. Now, this is super interesting, okay? I, I think this is really interesting. This is what the tabernacle looked like. We have lots of descriptions of it in the Old Testament. So think about this, okay? A person would have brought their korban, their animal sacrifice, okay? And they would have, um, that was the ascension offering, the first one lifted there. They would pass through this tent entrance, and here was the altar where they would burn the, the uh, offering. Here is the holy place, and Paul read about this in Hebrews. And then there's this most holy place, which only the high priest would go to once a year, and this is for the general priest. And then it describes this heavy curtain here, right? You've heard about this curtain. It was torn when Jesus died. This curtain was, they were told to embroider two angels or cherubim on that. Now think of this. This is really cool. What happened when Adam and Eve left the garden? Do you remember? As they walked out, what did they see? two angels, and a flaming sword. As you came, you would see a flame and two angels protecting the holy place. That sacrifice was about bringing you back to Eden, okay? That sacrifice was about you going, approaching the holy of holies. And the, the, the theology of this is, is really deep. So they would bring this to the altar. The offerer would lay their hands on the animal, and that's when the repentance would, would take place. That's when they were, they were saying they were sorry. And remember, God says the offering must be offered voluntarily. It says that in Leviticus. It says voluntarily. This was not some mindless transaction. It had to be voluntary. It's an act of repentance. So they would lay their hands on the animal, and then the high priest would kill the animal, and he would save some of the blood, and then put the animal on an altar that probably looked something like this. And this is the interesting theology. The animal's body is burned, and the smoke reaches God, okay? It can get to the tent, but only by passing through death first, and that's the same as us, right? We only get to God now by passing through death first. And so I, I think this is just something to meditate on, the, the theology of this offering. We as humans, because of what we've done, we've built Babylons throughout the world, right? We're not building Eden. We're building Babylons. And because of that, we too, like the animal, have to surrender life so that we can enter life. We have to pass through death first to reach God. So the idea of surrendering, surrendering life to gain life, like that's all through the Bible, right? That's the core of the gospel itself. You, you must die to live. Um, so that's, that's represented in this sacrifice ritual too. But the animal was blameless, okay? The, the word is tamim, in, in Hebrew, which meant without blemish. If it's used with animals, it's without blemish. If it's used for people, it's uh, without fault or sinless. 
So they would bring this unblemished animal, and it dies. And God tells the people, tells the Israelites, that he accepts this substitute that dies on their behalf. And you're thinking, well, it's not fair that the animal died. Like, it should be able to enter the tent. It's blameless. Like, it doesn't need to die. But because the animal represents me, it has to die to enter. So that's what we need to meditate on. It doesn't seem fair. And that's the point. <laughs> that's the point. It's not fair. You're not supposed to like it. It's supposed to feel bad. Sin always costs something. Okay, so first they would drain the blood from the animal, and this is interesting too. In addition to burning the sacrifice, the priest did something with the blood. Depending on who the person was and what they were atoning for, the priest would sprinkle the blood on the altar or other things in the tabernacle or temple. And that's weird, right? Like, I, whenever I read those passages, I'm like, that must have been one, you know, gross-looking temple with blood everywhere. But the best way I can think of to express this is that the blood not only atones for people, it also purifies creation around it. So it's kind of like when you sin, not only do you sin against God, you also sin against creation itself. And sin, sin pollutes the world, like graffiti or, or pollution. And so the priest would use his innocent blood to purify things within the tabernacle. He would put, put blood on the horns of the altar, these corners, and on his hands, um, on his feet. He would um, put, the, put blood on, on various implements with, that were used in the, in the altar, or sorry, in the temple. Um, and on the Feast of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the high priest also sprinkled blood on the Ark of the Covenant, which... Um, between the two angels on the Ark of the Covenant is a term called the mercy seat, and he would sprinkle blood on that. So we tend to see blood as a symbol of death. It's hard not to. But all through the Old Testament, blood is a symbol of life. That's another important cultural thing that you've got to switch in your brain. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of a creature is in the blood. Now check this out. This is super, super interesting. This, when this hit me, I just had to meditate on it for a while. The life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. The thing that was interesting to me is the words, given it to you. Because there's a twist there, and it's subtle, but I think it's really profound. You have to kind of um, think of it this way. It's not God saying, the life of the creature is in the blood, and so you have to give me the blood. I need blood. I'm a bloodthirsty God. I need, I need reparation. I need vengeance. Give me your blood. No, it's, that's, and that's the atheist meme, right? No, it's the exact opposite of that. It is God saying, I will give you the blood. He says this in Leviticus 17, way before Jesus. I will give you the blood so that you can be forgiven as a gift to you. So the animal's blood is not a gift from us to him. It's a gift from him to us. That blew my mind when I thought about it. Okay? That's worth meditating on. The animal's blood is not a gift from us to God. It's a gift from God to us. Okay, so to summarize, they would bring an unblemished animal, sacrificed, it would be this covering, this atonement, and the sacrificial blood can also purify the effects of sin in the temple, in the world, and that's where we get all this blood language. We just sang about nothing but the blood and the precious blood. That's where we get all this blood language from. And it's, it's got to be weird to people who have no worldview of Christianity, right? It's got to seem like the most gory and strange religion. Um, 
there's also really interesting theology around the other offerings, like the grain offering, where we get our tithe from, or the scapegoat offering on Yom Kippur. We don't have time to go into all that, but it's really interesting theology if you dig into it. All right, so you might not like, in this day and age, we might not like the use of blood. Uh, it's not a symbolism or a metaphor that we would use. It's certainly not going to please any vegetarians or animal rights people. But we have to remember not to be biased. Um, God's prescription for the early Israelites is not the same as his prescription for us now. Okay. Um, have you guys heard the term uh, presentism? Presentism, it's, it's rampant today, but it's the tendency or fallacy of interpreting past events in terms of modern values and concepts. We do this a lot. <laughs> it's very fashionable. Um, but it, it infers a complete lack of humility when you do that. It implies that, oh, if we had lived back then, we would have done differently, which is, which is just arrogant. Um, and it also distorts history because it takes everything out of context. But So I submit to you that it's not only presentism to dismiss the whole animal sacrifice in the Jewish faith, it's also very short-sighted because these rituals, as I hope illuminated a little bit, were really deep and really rich, and they had this great symbolism, and they should not be simply dismissed as primitive or superstitious. Okay, so let's forward into, fast forward into time. Later in the Old Testament, much later, um, the prophet Isaiah actually tells us He's prophesying to the Israelites, and they're, they're falling away. And in Isaiah 1.11, he says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? He's angry. He says, I have more than enough burnt offerings. I have more than enough of rams and fat, fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my court? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. He says this in Isaiah. So even when sacrifices were prescribed, as they still were in the time of Isaiah, even though they were still prescribing sacrifices, it was still about one's heart. It was never supposed to be this, this simple, mindless transaction with God. So even at its origin, it was supposed to remind people of the fall, of their sin, of God's holiness, and the need to get back in reconciliation, back to the, to the Holy of Holies, back to Eden. So it was always about the heart, um, and I think that's really important to remember. Um, but even if you don't like the whole talk about blood and sacrifice, I think it's really important that we remember that all forgiveness requires sacrifice. And I remember learning this, too, from, from Tim Keller a long time ago. Um, all forgiveness costs something. So, like, I, I was trying to think of a good example, and I, my examples were all, were all, were all stupid. <laughs> but let's say I have a really expensive power tool, and my neighbor's like, hey, can I borrow your whatever, your Makita hammer drill? And I give it to him and he drops it from four stories high, and it breaks, and it smashes, and it's unrepairable. Um, he could atone for it, right? He could give me a new tool, okay? That would be a sin offering. He could give me the money to buy a new tool, you know? He, but let's say they have no money. Let's say they have nothing. Can I choose to just forgive them? Sure, why not, right? It's easy. But it's actually not. <laughs> it's not that easy to forgive and forget. Um, to make, if it was easy, well, if it, yeah, if it were easy, that would mean that the tool was either useless to me or had no value, or that it cost me nothing to replace it. But neither of those is true in this example. So yes, I can forgive them, but it costs me something. <laughs> it costs me the pain of having to replace it. Uh, I have to eat the loss, and that entails some level of suffering, right? But that's, I mean, that's just a, a silly example. Like, think of something much deeper, like 
How about forgiving someone who committed a violent crime against your child? Or a drunk driver who kills someone you love? Would forgiving you cost anything? Forgiving them cost you anything? Of course it would. It would cost you a lot. It costs something. I mean, you better believe it would cost you a lot to suppress your anger and your desire for revenge and, your, and to deny the justice that you're owed, right? Like, that costs something. It hurts. It's hard. It's not easy. It's not free. And what's more, when we sin against other people, it not only costs the person we hurt something, it also costs God something because that person's made in God's image. So sinning against them is sinning against God. And because God is just, he's perfectly just, he can't just write it off. And I, and I see this, too, on, like, debates and, you know, with non-believers. And, like, well, if God's perfect, he can just write it off. It should be easy to forgive if you're omnipotent. Like, no, you don't understand the character of God, then, because he's perfectly just, right? To do so would mean God had no, va- there was no value in the person if he can just write it off, Amen. right? So it's way too flippant to say God doesn't need sacrifice. If he's all-powerful, he can just forgive, that's easy for him. No, it still costs God something. A perfectly just God must account for sin. If he didn't, he would not be worth worshiping. He would not be perfectly just. Okay, again, I think that's worth meditating on. So do Jews still offer animal sacrifices today? They do not. Um, If you remember, so they used the tabernacle, that tent, for hundreds of years, But then David's son, Solomon, built the first temple somewhere around 950 B.C. Probably looks something like this. Same altar, you know, same temple, same holy of holies back here. But as you can read throughout the Old Testament, the prophets uh, was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar in 587 B.C. And then it was rebuilt, right? Also described in the Old Testament. And we don't know what it really looked like, but it probably looks something like this. This is just a model. But the second temple was constructed. It took a long time to build. But this is the, the temple that Jesus saw and the apostles saw. And this was constructed about 517 B.C. To, to 70 A.D. And we know it was destroyed in 70 A.D. by the Roman emperor Titus. Um, and Jesus predicted this, right? Remember, Jesus said there will be no stone left on another stone. And this temple is completely gone. There's no two stones left on each other, just as Jesus prophesied. But um, this is interesting. So the temple's utterly destroyed. But this one little wall here, this is a model. This isn't real because it's gone. <laughs> that's what, but you can see this model in, in Israel. But there's just that one little wall, and that's all that's left. That's called the Wailing Wall, where the Jews go to pray today. And they put prayer notes in the cracks. And uh, Orthodox Jews um, want to see sacrifices come back. They believe that when the Messiah comes, there'll be a new place, a new temple to offer sacrifices. Non-Orthodox Jews are not missing that. They're not worried about this. They don't want to bring sacrifices back. But um, it's very important that you only sacrifice in the temple. Um, the Old Testament is very specific in how it's permitted and prescribed. It must be in the tabernacle and then the temple. So they can't just sacrifice now, and they don't. So there is no more sacrifice now. Um, okay. But we can't end it there. <laughs> We've we got to get a little bit into that Hebrews passage. So Hebrews is great. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Actually, I'm going to go back. We don't know who wrote Hebrews, but it was definitely a good preacher, and they knew how to explain this theology to Hebrews, to Jews. Hebrews 9.6 summarizes, uh, um, the whole book of Hebrews is about this. I mean, we could have read five chapters, 
But um, I don't, the message isn't one of my favorite translations, but they do a really good job with this passage because it's a, it's a difficult passage. So check, check this out. This is what Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, was talking about. He's summarizing the function of the Jewish high priest. And he says, only the high priest could enter the smaller inside tent, right, the Holy of Holies, and then only once a year, and he would offer a blood sacrifice for his own sin and the people's accumulated sin. This was the Holy Spirit's way of showing a visible parable that as long as the tent stands, people can't just walk in on God. Under that system, the gifts and sacrifices can't really get to the heart of the matter. They can't assuage the conscience of the people. They were just limited to matters of ritual and behavior. It was a, a temporary arrangement until a complete overhaul could be made. But when the Messiah arrived, he was the high priest of all the new things of this covenant. He bypassed the old tent and its trappings in this created world and went straight into heaven's tent, the true holy of holies, once and for all. He also bypassed the sacrifices consisting of goat and calf blood. Instead, he used his own blood as the price and set us free once and for all. If that animal blood and the other rituals were effective in cleaning up certain matters of religion and behavior, think of how much more the blood of Christ cleans up our lives inside and out. Through the Spirit, Christ offered himself as that unblemished sacrifice, freeing us from those dead-end efforts to make ourselves respectable so that we can all live for God. That's it. <laughs> that's, the, that's the whole theology from animals to Jesus, tied up in a bow in Hebrews. This guy knew how to preach. And notice that he says, um, if animal blood could do this much, how much more could God's blood do? And that, that's worth meditating on, too. Like, who someone is matters, right? Like, if I say you're pardoned, that means nothing. <laughs> but if the president says it, or a judge says it, that has some weight to it, right? Likewise, like, if I go up and slap somebody, um, maybe I'll get slapped back, or I'll get, I'll get assaulted, uh, you know, convicted for assault or arrested, but probably not. Um, but if I go slap the president, like, I'm going to be handcuffed and put in jail real quick. Like, who, who you are matters. Who you sin against matters. Uh, to some of us, you know, sinning against God is, is a big deal. And God can pardon. And so who Jesus was mattered, right? If Jesus was just a man, then all he could atone for with his unblemished life were him, was, would be himself. And if he had to atone for us, he would have to die over and over, millions of times for all of us, and probably every time we sinned. They have to do it again and again. But as Hebrews said, he was not just a man. That's the key, right? If he was God, that changes the equation. If he was God, he could die. It's the ultimate chess move for atonement. He, he, he could die once and for all, as it says right there in Hebrews. An infinite God can provide an infinite atonement. And forgive, forgiveness still costs something, right? It costs God a lot. It cost him his life, the life of his son. God passed through death for us to offer us and to open the Holy of Holies. That's why the curtain was torn on Good Friday. All right. So yes, Hebrews explains this well, and that's why we don't offer sacrifices anymore. This is the covenant now that I will make with them. He's quoting Jeremiah. This is the covenant that I will, I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts now and write them on their minds. No more stone tablets. It's in your heart now. It's in your mind. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering needed for sin. We don't have to sacrifice anymore. Okay. Since we're coming off Easter and Holy Week, I wanted to end with this. Jesus knew he was going to die, right? 
he predicted it. He told his disciples this. They didn't, didn't sink in um, until afterwards that he meant it or meant it literally or whatever. Um, they were all surprised. They did not expect it. And when I was prepping for this message, I kept wondering, you know, the Bible's all about poetic like imagery and like things happening at the right time. Why didn't Jesus die on Yom, Yom Kippur? That would have made more sense, the Day of Atonement. Why did he die on Passover? They screwed something up. <laughs> Jesus got, got the day wrong. No, but um, Passover is when God saves. Atonement is about justice and restoration, but atone, uh, Passover is when, when salvation happened. We didn't talk about the use of blood in, in Exodus, but you remember lamb, a lamb was killed, and they put the blood on the doorpost, right, so God could pass over those, those homes to avoid death in that house. And what did John the Baptist call Jesus when he first kind of initiated his ministry? He called him the Lamb of God. Like, John the Baptist got it right away. This is the new lamb. This is the Passover lamb that, that, that's going to save all of us. And there's, this is interesting, too. There's some debate on whether Jesus actually died on a Thursday or a Friday. Um, it's really interesting to get into Scripture and try to figure out which one. We know that he died at 3 p.m., but the day is less clear, and there's really good biblical arguments for both. Most of us assume and hold to the tradition that he died on Good Friday, but there is a good argument that he died on Thursday night, and Thursday would have been the official Passover day. The official meal would have been eaten on that Thursday. Um, but whether it was Thursday or Friday doesn't, doesn't really matter. I, I wanted to set this up so you can picture this. That Thursday during Passover at around 9 a.m., um, Israel's high priest would be in the temple getting ready to sacrifice lots of animals. Um, he would be tying the Passover lamb to the altar for sacrifice. And Mark 15 tells us that the third hour, 9 a.m., maybe that at, the, at that exact same time, Jesus was being nailed to a cross. I uh, wanted to point this out. They don't know exactly where the crucifixion took place. Traditionally, it's thought that it's here. That's where the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is. Um, but it could have been here. There's also archaeological argument for this. But either way, they're almost equidistant from the temple. This, this is what it, what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. This is about 0.3 miles. It's not far. You could easily see this. And I love this painting. Jesus probably could see the temple as he was being crucified because he was on a hill. And there's pretty, it's not, it's not mountain country, it's hilly, but it's, and let me read to you what Jewish writings talk about as they describe the day of Passover. You can get this from the Mishnah, some Jewish writings. This is what, we, what would have been happening in the temple while Jesus was, was during, either on the cross or, or, or slightly before it. The daily burnt offering was slaughtered at the eighth hour, which is 2 p.m., and offered up at the ninth hour, 3 p.m., at the same time, Jesus was said to die. When the ninth hour arrived, a long blast of the shofar horn would signal the Levites. The gates of the inner temple court would be opened, and the first crowd of Israelites with their lambs would rush in. Lines of priests would have been standing ready with gold and silver basins for passing the blood to the altar. As an Israelite slaughters the Passover lamb and a priest received the blood, he would hand the bowl to his fellow and his fellow to his fellow, each one receiving a full basin and handing back an empty one. The priest nearest the altar would toss the blood at the base of the altar, just as Paul read. The Passover lambs were killed in three consecutive waves while the slaughter was being performed. And while this happened, the Levites, the priests in the temple, would chant Psalms 113 to 118, which is called the Halal. 
Within minutes, the clean and spotless courtyard around the altar was stained red with blood, and the gutters flowed red. The base of the altar would seem to bleed, even gush forth, as basin after basin of blood was splashed against it in quick succession. And Jesus may have been hanging on the cross at this time, looking, hearing maybe even those Psalms 113 to 118. And the verses, last verses of the Hallel there are, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done this this very day. Let us rejoice and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You see that irony there? Like, how perfect is that? Jesus, Yeshua, the Lamb of God, dying during Passover as the ultimate Lamb, and the Levites could have possibly been singing those songs at the exact same time, and they don't even realize they're singing about him. It was no mistake that he was, he was crucified on Passover rather than Yom Kippur. And you can't make this kind of poetic literature and irony up. Like, others have said it, and I agree. If I didn't worship God, I'd have to worship the authors of the Bible because this story is too amazing and beautiful to have been written by men. And by 60, over 60 different men, and yet these themes are preserved through thousands of years. That's supernatural to me. This is the greatest story ever told. And the more you dig into it, the more you find out how beautiful and how wrapped up in poetic symbolism it is. And I, got, I think God wants us to see that. We worship a living, compassionate God, not a bloodthirsty, primitive God. Amen? Amen. He paid the cost of forgiveness so that we can have atonement. All right, let's pray. Father, we believe and accept that just as with the ancient Israelites in Egypt, when you see the blood of the Lamb, you will pass over us and save us. We give our allegiance to Jesus and ask for his blood to atone for our sins and our fallenness. We want to get back to Eden, Father. Come back, please. Help us to meditate on these things, and through your Spirit, give us hearts that can grasp at least some measure of this miracle. Amen.